Chapter 1 Jesus, Abraham, and the Shema, in which we explore what exactly it means to love God. Luke 10, verses 25 to 28. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. I want to tell you about my first experience with God, which is a weird way to start a book, but not so weird if the book is about God. I know for some people out there, this is like me saying, I want to tell you about my first experience with poltergeists, or I want to tell you about my first experience with aliens, or I want to tell you about my first experience with Vancouver Grizzly fans. But here it is. I was five. Sometime around when I was in kindergarten, my parents, who were good Midwestern folk, must have decided that now that they had a kid, they had best cobbled together some values and decided to send me to church on Sunday mornings for Sunday school. Luckily, there was a yellow brick church down the road, exactly one mile down the road, in fact, called Mount Zion. My dad dropped me off each Sunday at 9 a.m. There were kids there and sometimes fun games or songs to sing. And best of all, there were cookies. The Sunday school teachers were nice and they told Bible stories that looking back on them felt a little bit like Aesop fables. Emphasis on felt here because there was this thing called the flannel graph, which was a big felt board featuring blocky characters cut out of felt to illustrate the Bible stories. We did not have HD video. At any rate, one morning, immediately after class was over, the teacher told us that we could go to the church library. My mom was a kindergarten teacher, and our frequent visits to the local library were my favorite, so I was excited to go. The church library had a children's section, and I picked up a few books and checked them out. That night, I opened up one of the books that had been suggested to me. This children's storybook happened to be about hell. That's right, hell. The first line was, do you know what hell is? I did not. I was five. But thanks to this author, I was about to find out. The book began to explain, using words like eternal separation from God and punished for your sins and even weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, and there were illustrations. I would have loved to see the back and forth correspondence between the author and the illustrator. Yeah, Monique, what we're going for on page four is more of a visual hellscape. Yeah, something with flames. Do you have much experience drawing people experiencing eternal conscious torment? I remember sitting on my bed and instinctively pulling my multicolored striped comforter over my head as a five-year-old protection technique. And I remember feeling a strong emotion rising in me. Fear. It was cold, unflinching fear as strong as iron. This was the worst news ever. This was worse than the fact that Darth Vader lived in my closet. And definitely worse than the tentacled creatures under my bed that required me to long jump onto my mattress when I came back from the bathroom in the middle of the night, lest they grab my ankles and pull me into their lair. I can't imagine there are a lot of children's book authors out there whose goal is to pen a book that provokes existential fear and dread in children. But I have to hand it to the author of You're Probably Going to Hell, or whatever the book was titled, 
He had done an excellent job developing tension within the reader. I frantically turned the page. Was there a way out from all of this? Or were we all doomed? The author explained that yes, there was a way out of this horrible fate, an escape route. Yes, yes, I said to myself, I'll take it. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. The author laid it out. To escape this place, hell, which was filled with demons, wild torment, blazing fire, and unquenchable thirst for all eternity, all you had to do was say these six words. God, will you forgive my sins? Wait, what? I read that part again in disbelief. Seriously? That was all you had to do? That was it? Say one sentence? I read the page again. I looked at each word. I felt a giant relief rising in my kindergarten heart. I could get out of this hell place. I looked at the sentence again, and I said it out loud like it was a spell and I was Harry Potter. Expecto Patronum, Deus Hellas Escapum. God, will you forgive my sins? I said it. I looked around, half expecting some sort of cosmic indication. I said it again, this time a little louder, in case, you know, God couldn't quite hear it. I looked at the page again. I followed along, tracing each word with my finger, and said the line out loud again. God, will you forgive my sins? I flipped through to the end of the book, making sure there was nothing else. The author assured me there was not. I closed the book and said the line one more time, you know, just for good luck. God, will you forgive my sins? And that was that. I rolled over on my Star Wars pillowcase, kissed Princess Leia goodnight, and prepared to go to sleep. I was safe. Safe from the bad place and assured a spot in the good place, none of which mattered until after I died anyway. And with that terrifying caricature theology lodged firmly in my five-year-old brain, I drifted off to sleep. And if I'm honest, I didn't think much about God until years and years later. After all, why would I? God was only useful as some sort of get out of Dante's Inferno free card. He had served his purpose. And as I entered into adolescence, I had a life to live, classes to pass, SAT scores to get, girls to get rejected by, and Belle Biv DeVoe to listen to. Saint Diana. Speaking of hell, years later when I was in junior high, I was still hanging around church, mostly because some of my friends went there. At one point, there was a trip or a retreat of some sort where adult leaders took 30 or so of us junior high students to a giant mansion called the Proctor House, located in the middle of nowhere. Just saying that sentence, I realized that sounds exactly like the plot of a horror film. During this time, a number of things happened. We played in the snow, played hide-and-seek in this cavernous mansion, and watched movies. But the adults also wanted to do something to help us spiritually, so the leaders prepared little talks and activities. And one of the leaders was a saint of a woman named Diana Thomas. I need to pause and talk about Diana Thomas for a minute. Diana was an adult who voluntarily agreed to hang out with junior high kids, on purpose. And she was singularly gifted at it. Junior high is a terrible time developmentally for humans. We are all a quivering mess of insecurity and immaturity, but the primary thing I remember about Diana is that she made me feel like a million bucks. She always made me feel like I was her personal favorite. She made everyone feel this way. And she was filled with an easy, affable joy that made you feel like you mattered. She was a saint. 
And as we gathered as a teeming mass of insecure humanity in one of the great rooms in the Proctor House, Diana handed out little slips of paper for her talk. It was a quiz. It went something like this. The reason we go to church and follow God is because A, it gets us out of hell. B, we get to go to heaven. C, we get to live a full, meaningful life in a close, loving relationship with God who walks with us through all the ups and downs of life. Oh, I knew this one. It was A. A, gets us out of hell. Possibly with shades of B, the heaven thing. But definitely A, get out of hell. I remember that book from all those years ago. I mean, how could I forget? (laughs) Trauma is funny that way. At any rate, I knew the answer. I raised my hand. Oh, Diana, it's A. The answer is that we get out of hell, I said. I said this with the exact same confidence that I would have said crisscross if she had asked, who are the Mac Daddy and the Daddy Mac who make you want to jump, jump? Diana looked at me quizzically and tilted her head to the side like a cocker spaniel. Actually, the answer is C, she said kindly. (laughs) The answer is A, I said. I wasn't trying to be disrespectful or contrarian. I wasn't that type of kid. I was just stating a fact. At that point, Diana began explaining why C was the correct answer. She began to share about her life. You could not tell by the joy that spilled out of her, but Diana had experienced some real tragedy and pain, some deep human betrayal, the kinds of things that we junior hires with our limited life experience probably imagined would make somebody permanently sad. But Diana was not permanently sad. She was the opposite. And she told us, through tears, that through all of this, God had helped her and had been with her. Through everything. She talked as though she had a deep affection for God, like he was a real person. Helped her? Been with her? What? This was completely foreign to me. This was the first time I had ever heard anyone infer that God had something to do, not merely with the afterlife, but with this life. The way Diana talked, it was as if she somehow lived her life with God. After her brief talk, it was time for a snowman building contest and then hot chocolate, so the entire room emptied as the junior hires excitedly scurried away to change into their winter gear. But I just sat in the room as it emptied. I looked at the quiz on that slip of paper that Diana had handed us. I read it again. Answer number C. We get to live a full, meaningful life in a close, loving relationship with God who walks with us through all the ups and downs of life. A loving relationship with God? I think about this moment a lot. I want to be careful here. I am not minimizing the presence or importance of the biblical ideas about heaven and about hell. This is a significant biblical theme. For example, Jesus directly teaches or says something about hell more than 70 different times in the Gospels. And he talks about heaven and eternal life or his coming kingdom roughly three times as much, more than 190 different times. We would be foolish to ignore Jesus' clear warnings and teachings on these topics. But of the roughly 1,900 total verses that contain Jesus' words, that's only about 3% of the time on hell and about 10% of the time on heaven. A big deal, for sure. But what about the remaining 87%? My point is, it's possible 
that without Diana Thomas, I might have gone my entire life without hearing that the church, Jesus, and the Bible had anything to do with loving God or living life with God in the here and now. I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. Fast forward a few decades. I'm a pastor now. For years, the church I work at has had a mission statement saying that we exist to help people love God and love other people. This is because Diana was right. The giant cosmic story told by the Bible is one of God's desire to be with his people. The idea of humans living life with God and learning to love him is one of the main points of the entire Bible and a major thrust of Jesus' life and words and teaching. There's a moment in the New Testament, part of which recounts the time when Jesus walked on earth, when a Jewish scholar, one of the teachers of Jewish law, asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Basically, the Jewish leaders were asking, you're a religious teacher, break it down for us. What's the most important thing that God wants us to do? Now, at this point, we have to back up to the Ten Commandments handed to Moses by God himself on Mount Sinai. But those weren't the only rules or commandments that God had given the Hebrew people. Remember, this was a group that had been horrifically oppressed for 400 years under a genocidal tyrant in Egypt. These people didn't know how to be free or to live free. They had only known slavery. God was trying to rehabilitate their view of themselves and to teach them how to live well. And in those Jewish scriptures, God outlines more than 600 different laws and regulations to follow, including food laws, so the people wouldn't get sick, guidelines for religious festivals, so the people could worship God freely, temple rituals, so the people can know they're forgiven and that God is still with them, and civil governance, so they could have a fair and just society. Jesus is asked by religious scholars, of the 613 laws and regulations, what's the most important one? For centuries, the Jewish people would have had a clear answer to this question. From those 613 laws and regulations, the Israelites found one they clearly identified as the most important. Every parent would have taught it to their child. This was as common in the minds of the people of Israel as the Pledge of Allegiance is to modern Americans. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, and it's affectionately known to Jewish people even today as the Shema. And here it is, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses. This one was the most important. And when asked which commandment was the most important, Jesus quoted the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. This is not a trick question. This is a chance for the religious leaders in Jerusalem to find out whether this country preacher from Nazareth, Jesus, is orthodox or not. Does he get it? Is he with us? Is he Jewish? And Jesus replied by saying this. Matthew 22, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In the Gospel of Luke, this same exchange is recorded slightly differently. Here's how that one reads in Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? 
He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. This exchange is also recorded again in another gospel called Mark. And Jesus says in Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Regardless of the order, Jesus is giving a provocative answer. The most important religious, moral, ethical codes can be reduced to this. Love God and also love your neighbor. And whatever the words heart, soul, strength, mind might mean or how they overlap, the clear implication from Jesus is that we, as humans, should love God with the entirety of our being. Won't you be my neighbor? Now, before we go any further, I want to point out that Jesus' answer in all those verses is actually pretty revolutionary. Notice, Jesus' answer wasn't the Shema, as it had been for centuries. Jesus' answer was the Shema and love your neighbor as yourself. The and part is critical. Jesus is basically rewriting the ancient Jewish version of the Constitution by adding in the shocking and critical part of love your neighbor as yourself. In general, it is frowned upon to rewrite things like that. It'd be like adding a line to the Pledge of Allegiance or adding a verse to Ice Ice Baby. It would be shocking. Now, I promise we will come back to this radical command to love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quote from Leviticus 19.18 in a little bit. But for now, I want to admit that at least for me, the love your neighbor as yourself part of the Jesus' instructions about what's most important speech makes sense to me. Ever since I was in kindergarten, I've been taught the golden rule about do unto others by nearly every adult. So I have some instincts about what it means to love other people, due to the fact also that my mom was a kindergarten teacher. These are general rules like don't lie to people, don't hit people, don't take people's graham crackers when they're not looking, share the craft supplies, be nice with your words, help other people, especially if you're good at something and they're new to it. Don't move the spinner in chutes and ladders just to avoid losing. Make sure everyone is included in the game of kickball, even if they totally suck. If they do totally suck at kickball, clap and say, it's okay, next time. Don't say, ugh, you suck, Kevin, I wish you were dead, because that's not nice. Seriously, winning at kickball isn't that important. Don't cut in line. Listen to the teacher. Even today at church, we talk all the time about the three loves. Loving God, loving one another, loving our neighbor. And if I'm honest, the metrics and measurables and action steps for loving one another and loving our neighbor are a lot more concrete. They're easier to wrap my mind around. It's stuff like be part of a life group, serve the community by doing service projects, give money to support important projects that help people here and across the globe, serve at church. At some level, I understand these. But man, it's that love God part that still sort of trips me up. Oftentimes when folks hear it, they interpret it to mean something like read your Bible or pray or simply attend weekend gatherings. It's very mushy, and it's certainly not actionable or measurable. How do I know if I'm loving God more? Is there a device like the people of Whoville use to measure the Grinch's heart? Good news, Mrs. Kandinsky. It appears that your heart for God is now three sizes bigger. 
This is compounded by the fact that the English word love itself is so elastic in its meaning to be rendered largely meaningless. I love tacos, but I also love my mom. What? And what about those words that Jesus used to explain how we're supposed to love God, using our heart and soul and strength and mind? What are those words? Do they overlap? Are they synonyms? Love God with your heart. Is this about my emotions? Do I have to maintain some passionate religious zeal inside me at all times? If so, I don't know how to do that. I don't even have overwhelmingly positive emotions about my own children all the time. In fact, in my life, the only person I've ever been able to muster up unwavering love and devotion and affection for is Princess Leia, also Mariah Carey. And even then, that was only when I was a teenager. Okay, maybe through my early 20s. Love God with all your soul. What is that? What is my soul? Is it like the movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze? Do I have an immaterial part of me that can pass through walls, talk to Whoopi Goldberg, and eventually kiss Demi Moore? Is this soul somehow living in my physical body? I have so many questions. How am I supposed to love God with something I don't even understand? Love God with your strength. Uh, what? Is this about my physical strength? Am I supposed to bench press for Jesus? Do box jumps for Jesus? Is this just about my physical body? Am I supposed to be ripping phone books in half for Jesus? Love God with your mind. Is this about my intellect? Does this mean I'm supposed to study God, learn about God, take some classes? Is there a curriculum? Will there be a test? Should I be studying? Is this pass-fail? Oh, man. Me and all my perfectionist friends are now freaking out. If Jesus is saying one of the most important things to do with your life is to love God with your whole self, your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, then, man, I sure would like some more detail on how exactly to do that. And that's what the story of Abraham and the framework given to me by Gary helps with. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Okay, at this point, I realize I have to stop. Something's been bothering me here, and I need to take a few minutes to clear it up. I have been unclear thus far in this book about a word I've been using. So let's start with this sentence. I love God. Now, I submit to you that this sentence is beautiful, but it's also a muddled mess. Because if the word love is vague in our world, then the word God is even more vague and more malleable. If I were to ask you, what comes to mind when you hear the word God? The answers would vary widely. Look, I'm not a religious historian, but it seems to me that in our society, the term God is basically a Rorschach test, allowing people to import whatever conceptions, whatever meaning, whatever ideas they want onto it. There are as many ideas about God as there are noses, it seems. This is where I think Abraham's story is very helpful. Abraham's story allows us to be concrete and specific about which God we're talking about. Also, if you'll notice, this story about Abraham appears very, very early in the story of the Bible. Abraham, to his credit, really doesn't know much about this God. He doesn't have the entire Bible or the history of prophets or 2,000 years of church tradition. He's flying blind. And as we follow along with Abraham, like him, you and I will begin to learn things about God's character. In that way, the story might actually confront our wishes or our preconceived ideas about what God might be like. 
those ideas might actually be off-center, or worse, they might be very wrong. As Voltaire once famously quipped, in the beginning God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. We all want a God who looks and thinks just like us. But the story of the Bible shows us that this is not always true. The story of Abraham helps us in a few key ways learn about God, because it's tough to love someone you don't know, right? I can see clearly now. There's a philosophical term called the doctrine of revelation, which says basically that if God didn't reveal himself to humans, then because of our finiteness, we would have no real way of knowing anything about him. We'd just be guessing or making stuff up. In the story of Abraham, God breaks through into human history and reveals information about himself to Abraham. So we can know and stop guessing. Say my name, say my name. The Bible doesn't always use the word God when it's talking about God. Sometimes in Hebrew, it uses the word Yahweh, sometimes spelled Y-H-W-H, which is translated in your Bible as Lord in all small caps. This word Lord is the most used word in the entire Bible, with more than 6,500 references. But where did this name come from? In Exodus 3, Moses has an encounter with God at the burning bush. Moses is freaked out and asks, what kind of God, Elohim, are you? The Hebrew word Elohim is actually a generic word for supernatural deity. Moses was raised in Egypt, a polytheistic society. There were gods, Elohim, everywhere. Egypt had Hapi, the Elohim of the Nile River, Ra, the Elohim of the sun, Nut, the Elohim of the sky, Hathor, the Elohim of motherhood, Elon, the Elohim of electric cars. How does the Elohim who shows up to Moses in the burning bush differentiate himself from all those other Elohim? Well, first, he tells Moses his name. In English, this name is translated into I am who I am, which in Hebrew consists of four letters, Y-H-W-H, or Yahweh. In English, this name is always translated as all uppercase Lord, not to be confused with the general word Lord, which means master or ruler, which could be anyone, including a human. No, this is God's name, but it's not only a name. It's a deeply personal character statement. Translated from Hebrew, Yahweh basically means whatever it is that I am, that is what I am, or I am and will continue to be what I am. Whatever character traits that this Elohim Yahweh exhibits, he has always been those things. He is self-existent, and he will always be those things because he does not change. This is important because it's not true about you or me. You and I are only sometimes what we are. For example, my name is David, and I am funny, except when I'm not. I'm a loving father, except when I'm not. I am devoted to God, except when I'm not. You get the point. This God, Yahweh, is consistent and reliable and unchanging. But there's one more thing to note. If you ask someone their name, and upon introduction, someone told you, I am always what I am, what's the very next question that would naturally occur to you? I think it would be, well, then what are you? Do you see? The very name that God gives Moses contains a riddle and an invitation. What am I? Well, come and find out.
It's an invitation to a grand journey of discovery of God himself, about what he's like, and an invitation to be with him, to walk with him through all the changing experiences of life. You'll also notice God tells Moses that his story is rooted in the particular story of Abraham. So, by studying the life of Abraham recorded in this Bible, we can learn to find out things about this God's character. Just as Abraham is learning about God, so are we. The story of Abraham reveals the beautiful cosmos-healing mission of God. And a big part of that mission is that the unique character and the unique person of Yahweh would be known to the entire world. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is presented as being completely unique and fundamentally different from all the other gods. The knowledge of God and about God is central to the story of Abraham because it's central to the larger story of salvation that God's writing. And as we walk through the story of Abraham, we're going to learn, along with Abraham, just how wildly different this Elohim is than anything Abraham has ever seen or even heard about. So, that's what I mean when I use the term God. So, I hope that's helpful, or at the very least, more clear. How this book will work. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at four key moments in the story of Abraham. There are four high point moments in the life of Abraham. I think you could make a pretty strong case. They're the four most important moments in the account in Genesis of Abraham's life. And then, using Abraham as a mirror, we'll examine what lessons jump out from these four moments about what it means to love God, what Abraham shows us about what loving God and doing life with God actually looks like. Here's why I'm excited. I think you'll find, as I did, that the story of Abraham found in Genesis serves to provide us with a functional and actionable definition of what it means, what it looks like to love God. Abraham's life is like a field guide, showing us how a human can live out what it means to love God with all one's heart, one's soul, one's strength, and one's mind. One important clarification. We're studying the life of Abraham because he's one of the most important characters in the entire Bible, but not because he was perfect. As we'll see, Abraham was not a superhero. Like almost every other character, Abraham got things totally wrong as often as he got them right. There's only one model of perfection in the Bible, and that's Jesus. As another one of my Western seminary professors, Tim Mackey, said, instead of being heroes, these characters are more like mirrors for self-reflection. We're meant to study these stories, identify with, and see ourselves in these stories, and ask ourselves what we would do. The goal is to enter into the character story and let it become instructive for me and how I might or might not want to make similar decisions. The biblical author is often evaluating a character's decisions by narrating consequences and putting the ball in your court to make connections. Sometimes, these characters fail in tragic ways. That's to serve as a warning. But sometimes they get things gloriously right. That's to serve as an inspiration. As we travel through the four key moments of Abraham's life, we'll unpack four key lessons, which will serve as the basic framework for the book. Lesson one, loving God means being loyal and committed to him, even if it costs you. In Genesis 12, we see the first interaction between God and Abraham, where God interrupts and upends Abraham's whole life. 
And while living in a foreign land with foreign gods that demanded to be served, Abraham makes a decision that this God and God alone will be his God. And we learn, along with Abraham, why exactly this God is even worth our loyalty and our commitment. Lesson number two, loving God means trusting him, even when it doesn't make sense. Jesus said to love God with all your heart. And in the Bible, the word heart doesn't mean your emotions. It's meaning it's closer to motives or your control panel. But turning over control of your life to anyone is terrifying. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham to move from his home. Where? He's not told. He must go and trust without knowing all the information. God tells Abraham in Genesis 15 that he'll have a son despite his advanced age. How's that going to work? He is not told. Part of loving God means trusting him, not only part of your life, but with the entirety of your life. And often, these situations cause deep fear and require vast courage to trust in God. Lesson number three, loving God means we seek justice. We live right, we do what's right, and we help set things right. In Genesis 18, we'll see a city descend into great moral chaos and wickedness. This is juxtaposed to Abraham, who God says practices justice and righteousness, a complex nuanced phrase that means basically that Abraham loves what's right and does what's right. Abraham is told by God that he's going to be a blessing to all the nations. And part of that is that God wants his people to embody righteousness and justice in a world filled with oppression and injustice. It turns out that loving God and loving your neighbor are inseparable. Loving God means having his character and acting like him in human affairs. And lesson number four, loving God means we expect God to be good. We believe that God sees and will provide, especially when life falls apart. What we believe about God, if he's good or not, or trustworthy or not, will come to bear when life falls apart. The traumatizing narrative in Genesis 22 of Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac is instructive because it reveals Abraham's complete certainty of the goodness, provision, and help of God, Yahweh, coupled together with complete openness as to the details. When life falls apart, and it will fall apart, Abraham's refrain, the Lord will provide, is a model reply for us in the middle of the most agonizing questions of life. And this story points forward to the ultimate proof of God's love and provision, the cross. One more note. In the print version of this book, there are a bunch of QR or quick response codes embedded on the pages. Many of these QR links are links to videos from the good folks at the Bible Project who create wonderfully detailed, informative, and beautiful animated short films that explain the biblical concepts. If you'd like to see these videos, you can go online to westgatechurch.org Abraham for a complete list of these QR codes and resources. These videos supplement the content of this book, but their inclusion should not be considered an endorsement of this book from the Bible Project. Okay, I think that's it. You ready? You ready for this? Yeah, me neither. Let's jump in anyway. 